0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com/slash trip for free shipping and 365 day returns.
1: Hello, Train Happy Troopers. Welcome to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye, and today we are discussing all things intuitive eating, but in the context of children, parents and raising intuitive eating. Now we actually are talking to New York Times journalist and author of The Eating Instinct, Virginia Soulsmith. I love reading Virginia's work. She specializes in writing about feminism, health and body image. And so it was so great to hear her personal and professional perspective on, you know, raising children to be, you know, to have that happy, and peaceful relationship with food i'm really excited for you to hear this but before we get into it's a long discussion i should also say we ask i could have spoken to virginia all day she had so many great insights so and she has so much important information to share so this is a long episode but i really hope you enjoy it so before we get into it let's do this week's train happy trooper of the week So this week's train happy moment comes from Julie and she sent this in via Instagram and she said, I found out that my grandpa died of COVID. So I'm travelling to be with my mum and dad who have been isolating. And I was packing my clothes and the song Can't Get Enough by Love Beans came on Spotify. And I stopped packing and I did the dance you did on an old Insta story by memory. And it was a fun few minutes. Despite the craziness of this world. Julie, thank you so much for sharing how movement can be such a source of resilience and can be such a source of strength and, you know, can give you that courage to take on the difficulty of grief. Um, It's so hard. And if you're able to find small moments, where you can just maybe escape that for a little bit it can really help you deal with with what's to come so thank you so much for sharing that I really appreciated that honesty and I think it's so you know poignant of the time we are living through so if you have had a train happy moment recently that you would like to share on the podcast You can remain anonymously if you would prefer to then please send us an email to trainhappypodcast at gmail.com or send it via Instagram to the trainhappypodcast account which is at trainhappypodcast. Okay let's get into this wonderful chat with Virginia Soulsmith. Virginia welcome to the train happy podcast it's such a pleasure to have you I'm a big fan of your work and I'm just really excited to um yeah you know get your insight on some fairly big topics hopefully today great <laughs> um but firstly how how are you been? how are you doing um, are you based in New York, is that right, or n- nearby? Yeah,
0: I live in um, the Hudson Valley, which is an area sort of north of New York City, so, um, you know, much more rural uh Right now, we have two feet of snow covering everything, (laughs) Um, so uh, it's nice being out of the city. I lived in the city for a long time. It's nice being in the country, although this time of year, I question all of my life choices that led us (laughs) to live here, um, because there's a lot of snow, and of course, with COVID going on, you know, it's like every week, it's like, will we have snow days? Will we have remote school because of COVID? (laughs) Um, So. We are fine, you know, I feel like I can't complain when so many people are struggling with such bigger things, but um, yeah, reliable child care has been a constant theme of my, you know, constant question in the last year or so, so.
1: And I presume yeah. you're just working at home like everyone else?
0: Yeah, I mean, the sort of nice thing for me is as a journalist, I have worked from home since 2004, I want to say, maybe 2005. So I was sort of really well set up for that part of it. You know, like this is my home office, which is like this space over a garage. So it's kind of out of the way of the house and all of that was really good. Um, I am not so used to working at home with all of my family here though. That was, (laughs) that was a change. Um, So, you know, we've had to get creative. My husband also was already mostly working from home um, with his job. So, you know, we can tag team, we can pass back and forth. Um, We're also very fortunate to, you know, have a babysitter who can be here a lot of the time. So, you know, again, more in the inconvenience category than in the, you know, really dire straits category.
1: And, am I right in saying you also got a puppy this year
0: that or was last a mistake year? yes <laughs> I did I love her so much yeah. um, but anyone thinking about a pandemic puppy uh talk to me first <laughs> I got her so we got her almost exactly a year ago we got her last February so before everything happened okay and I think had I known what was coming because I also you know my kids are now seven and three but so for a lot of last year I had a two-year-old who was potty training and I had a puppy who was was potty training training (laughs) like is this the dog is this the daughter (laughs) it was it was, it's a blur. It's a, it's a time of my life. I will look back on with many questions. Yeah. Um, but we got through it. She's a lot of, you know, she's a lovely dog. It is, you know, it's also sort of the saving grace, right? Cause you have to walk the dog. It gets you outside. And you know, this would have been a time where this is always, you know, if you work from home, it's so easy to not leave your house for many days at a time anyway. And so she's been wonderful for mental health and just, you know, being out in the world a little bit more, but yes, there was some chaos puppies bring chaos <laughs> everyone
1: seems to be getting a dog at the moment unfortunately we're not allowed a dog in the building we live in otherwise I think we would have had
0: one, um, <laughs> you would have because, jumped on that thing oh again.
1: absolutely yeah um but I'm still living in central London so it's really hard to have a dog here it's not yeah. fair but but one day we'll we'll move out and we'll have our dog and I think um yeah for, for the reason of like you say the cup the you know company but also the ability to get outside yeah um I feel like that's just um a real motivation so you mentioned you are a journalist um and you specialize in writing about feminism you talk about body image and health um as well as coming at it from often like a parenting perspective as well Mm -hmm. so I'd love to know how you ended up writing about that what your kind of path to to journalism was, and then also specializing in those topics.
0: Sure. So, the way I got into journalism was in college. Um, I was doing a lot of internships at magazines, and mostly at women's magazines. And so, then I ended up on staff at women's magazines as like a you know editorial assistant right out of college. Um, and so, for the first ten years of my career, I was writing about health and fitness four women's magazines, which means I was writing a lot of diet stories, (laughs) a lot of weight loss, um, you know, get your best bikini body, all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, kind of dying inside as I was doing it. And I would spend a lot of time sort of rationalizing every story because I had a, you know, I definitely identified as a feminist at that point. You know, my mom's a feminist, like this was sort of really core to who I was. And so I was always sort of like, well, you know, like this is about getting stronger. It's not about, you know, like this, this isn't a diet. It's a lifestyle plan or, you know, all those rationalizations. And also this was in the early to mid 2000s when, you know, the food movement was getting really huge. You had Michael Pollan, um, Eric Schlosser, all these folks talking to us about shopping at your farmer's market and eating organic and then eating clean. And it was really easy to sort of say, well, I'm doing this for political reasons or moral reasons. Like, this Mm. is, you know, this is this sort of, like, virtuous way of living my life that aligns with my feminist values, even though, of course, (laughs) underneath all of that messaging is a very clear weight loss, you know, control your body, all of that kind of stuff. So it was a messy time, you know. I was yeah, not feeling great about the work I was doing, but also didn't really have alternative answers at that point. Um, The thing that happened that was sort of the big turning point in my life was becoming a mom. And, you know, I always feel a little cliche saying that because, of course, as a writer, I don't want to just be defined by this one aspect of my life. (laughs) Um, But in my case, becoming a mom was extra dramatic because what happened was my older daughter Violet, who's now seven, she was born with a rare congenital heart condition. And when she was a month old, her heart nearly stopped. She went into massive heart failure. We had to rush her to the hospital, go through emergency surgery. And we sort of started to learn about this condition and all the surgeries she would need over the next couple of years. But the big side effect of all of that medical intervention is that she totally stopped eating and she became dependent on a feeding tube. She couldn't nurse, she couldn't take a bottle. She was living on a feeding tube and so suddenly I was in this really insane position of all of the sort of ideas I had about what healthy eating meant and really as you become a parent those things get very mixed up you think that you know to be a good mom of course you have to breastfeed. To be a good mom you're going to make all your own baby food I mean all of these messaging we get about perfect eating and perfect motherhood are really intertwined. And like, none of that was accessible to me anymore. I mean, I couldn't, she, you know, I couldn't nurse her. She couldn't give her a bottle. I couldn't get her to take baby food. She was totally dependent on this feeding tube. And I had to figure out a way to help this little baby who was so traumatized feel safe eating and feeling safe around food. And that's when I realized, like, I didn't really say feel safe around food. I didn't have that same sense that I wanted to give my daughter a food as this sort of wonderful bonding thing because I was so caught up in diet culture and so caught up in trying to find these external plans and all these rules and so I think if I hadn't had that experience of like we have to completely throw the rule book out the window and start from scratch it would have taken a lot longer I don't know if I would be where I am today really Um, so in a way you know in a weird way I'm grateful for it and Ultimately, Violet did learn to eat again. It took about two years, but she became a really successful oral eater who loves food and is very enthusiastic and very opinionated about it, (laughs) um, which is great. And, you know, along the way, this whole experience I was having with her, I started learning more about the fat acceptance movement, health at every size, intuitive eating, and the version of intuitive eating that works more for families, which is this concept called division of responsibility, and figuring out how to apply that to our situation. Um, and that sort of got me on this path of realizing you know, so many of us launch into parenthood and into motherhood in particular with a lot of diet culture and a lot of baggage around our bodies and food And I don't say that to blame anyone because I was there, I had all the same baggage and then some, but if we don't change the conversation, we're only going to pass it on to our kids, we're only going to, you know, make it a whole new generation of people struggling with this stuff. So I think parents have a, you know, it is a burden in some ways, but it's also like a really great opportunity to, um, you know, change things for our kids and in the process help ourselves.
1: And this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you because (laughs) I'm so fascinated by this and, you know, me, myself thinking, you know, I hope motherhood isn't in in the, you know, too distant future for me. And this is something I think about a lot in terms of how we, you know, how we do have these conversations with children and how we, you know, even handle pregnancy itself as women and the changing bodies and the the kind of, the, the way that kind of makes you, feel very disorientated in your own body and, and, and you feel like your body isn't yours. Um, I know that can be really hard for people who even have done a lot of work already, you know, it
0: can still mm-hmm. throw you off Absolutely. course. Um, yeah.
1: And I think that that's normal in in this world that we're living in and and the sea that we're swimming in. Um, so I really am interested, you mentioned about this these ideas of perfection that are expected on parents and you know I'm thinking of you know the mums I know in my life who have young children and who you know feel that their child has to eat all the vegetables has to (laughs) do all these things you know they have everything like you say needs to be homemade prepared and um, I would love to get your take on that and how you've kind of navigated that and how your work has you know, got you in touch with other mums who are navigating the situation and, and how you look at it from that intuitive eating approach. Um, and so, yeah, I'm really interested in in that division of responsibility element as well.
0: Sure. So I think what's important to keep in mind for parents is how we feed our kids does matter. I mean, obviously, you, you know, you have to feed your child like just full stop because otherwise <laughs> it's child abuse. Um, and, you know, you have this, because you have to feed them and you have to feed them so many times a day, you know, it is this repeated exposure thing where the way you're doing it is really gonna influence how they feel about food and how they feel about their body. So yes, the pressure is sort of built in because it is a very important role that you play. However, we have a culture that tells us that the way to, quote, get it right is to feed them perfectly, which means lots of fruits and vegetables, no sugar, no processed foods, blah, 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 blah. And that message is completely at odds with what the research really shows matters in terms of how kids need to be fed. And what we know is that when parents... Are overly restrictive in the way they feed kids, meaning that they don't, you know, they ban lots of foods, ban treats, you know, count portions are really strict about, no, you can't eat that. Or when they use really high pressure feeding tactics, clean your plate, you have to eat all your broccoli in order to have dessert, you know, that sort of thing. Both of those models really backfire in terms of children, I mean, in pretty much every measure, they backfire because if kids are pressured to eat a food, they're much less likely to like it. Nobody, I mean, if you think back to your own childhood, whatever food you were forced to eat at dinner is probably still your least favorite. Like this is why people don't like Brussels sprouts, you know? Um, so it absolutely backfires in terms of getting kids to like the foods we hope they'll like. It also backfires if we have this goal of trying to control their weight, often we see more high pressure feeding situations and restrictive feeding is associated with higher body weights, probably because if you restrict someone's intake they then end up needing to eat more later and you know you kind of start this whole chain effect of of messing with that and. We also see that it really, really increases their risk for disordered eating, which mm-hmm. seems sort of obvious when I say it out loud. <laughs> but but when you're the parent in the moment and you're worrying about, but they haven't eaten a vegetable in a week and what do I do? You know, you're not always thinking long term like that. So it's really easy to feel like all that matters is what happens at this one dinner, when in fact, like it couldn't matter less what happens at any one dinner. It's this cumulative effect of how you're feeding them. So what we want parents to think about instead is taking a step back from the what and the how much. Those are the two things that parents get really fixated on. And it's much more important to think about things like how is the energy level at your dinner table? Like, are you enjoying dinner with your family? Are you using that time to talk about You know, I mean, if you have a little, little kid, you may not be having in-depth conversations. (laughs) But, you know, are you using that time to tell stories, tell jokes, sing songs or with older kids, like hear about their day, hear about what's going on with them? Is it an opportunity for connection for you as a family? Because all of the benefits in the research that we tie to family meals come from that. They come from this being a comforting, predictable, familiar routine in a child's life, a positive experience, something that they can look forward to and that you as a parent can look forward to. That's what builds the healthy relationship with food. Battling over Brussels sprouts, battling over you can't have another helping a pasta, All of that builds negative associations that are going to put your child at risk for other stuff. So it's really a huge relief because you can just stop worrying about the hard parts and not make them so hard, um, which is what I love. Now, when I talk about this, parents are often quick to say, like, so are you saying they just eat whatever they want? Are you saying, you know, we have no rules? Kids do need structure, right? We all need some kind of structure because... I mean, we've seen in COVID what happens when we have these sort of endless days where time has no meaning, like, you know, kids get more grouchy, it's harder for them to sort of be in touch with their bodies. So the division of responsibility concept, which was developed in the 80s by a dietitian and therapist named Ellen Satter, it says that parents are in charge of, you are in charge of meal planning, like in terms of what foods you're going to offer, but I'll say more about that in a second. But what you're really in charge of is where meals happen. So ideally like at a table, you know, sitting together um, and when they happen. So rather than sort of everyone grazing endlessly all day and, you know, Picking up, And because especially with little kids, they can they eat small amounts. And so it can sort of one meal can roll into the next can roll into the next. (laughs) And then kids don't really know when they're hungry or when they're full and they don't really sort of connect with the food. You know, it becomes this more mindless thing that can be harder to keep on, (coughs) excuse me, keep on top of. So instead, you do have like a pretty predictable meal and snack schedule, and you're going to still feed them very frequently, especially with small children. Um, You're going to feed them, you know, according to their hunger pattern. You're not ever approaching it in this restrictive way, but you are going to say, okay, it's snack time, we're going to sit down you know, wherever, on the park bench, at the coffee table, at the kitchen table, you know, and we're going to have your goldfish crackers and your apples or whatever. And this is snack time. And then we're going to put the food away and go play and do something else. So the kids have this sort of idea of food is something we come together around. We enjoy. We listen to our hunger and fullness. we We eat as much as we need. And the child is in charge of that. How much part the child is in charge of How hungry am I? And even of the foods on the table, which one am I going to eat? So if your child sits down to dinner, last night, for example, I made steak, salad, and cornbread for dinner. My husband and I ate pretty much all three things. (laughs) Um, My toddler ate two pieces of cornbread and a little bit of salad. And like, she wanted the steak on her plate, but I don't think she really ate the steak. It's kind of hard for her to chew, you know? And then my older daughter- ate two pieces of cornbread, didn't want the steak, didn't want the salad and said, can I add an apple or a banana? And I said, sure. And that was what she wanted for dinner last night. Now you may all be like, what? Your children ate nothing for dinner. There are other meals where they eat tons of different foods, but that was a meal where the food that was most interesting to them was the cornbread. And so that's what they had for dinner. And that's fine. They still got exposed to the other foods. They were still sort of aware of them. They saw us enjoying them. And more importantly, we spent most of this dinner talking about things that had nothing to do with food. We were talking about a snow fort they were building and you know what we might do this weekend and like I don't even remember Um, you know silly stuff but it was like a really nice happy meal where nobody was feeling stressed or pressured or anxious and so that's what I want them to come away with. So yeah so I think this is what it really comes down to as parents can take the pressure off ourselves of how much they're eating at any meal and which foods they're eating and focus much more on like, how am I creating this opportunity for connection with my kids?
1: I have a few thoughts. I think firstly, just thinking of my own childhood experience, I've, I'm have i from a family that was very much, everyone sits down, this is the one opportunity, you know, to all be together and eat your meal together and enjoy that. Um, and, you know, we could eat you know, whatever we needed. However, we were very much a clean your plate family. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And there were times when if you didn't clean your plate, I don't think this happened to me. I think this happened to my sister, but it would get served up at breakfast, you know, that kind of you must eat this. And I also remember my dad used to get really annoyed with my little brother because he liked to eat things one by one. And my dad (laughs) always and I all I say this now to my my partner, I kind of joke in a jokingly way. I always say, why do you eat things one by one, the flavors, (laughs) my dad, I just vividly remember him saying, when the meal was cooked, the flavors were intended to go together. That's how the meal was prepared. (laughs) And so I always joke about that thinking, you know, you want a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And that's how I like to eat. But I recognize that doesn't work for everyone. And I just think it's so interesting that even though in my house, I feel really lucky that, you know, I never had parents on diets. We didn't talk about those kinds of things. Mm. It wasn't important. And I realized that is extremely rare. And yet there are still food rules you pick up as young children. Um, whether that be, I think for my family, the idea of there was an element of scarcity there that, you know, if you mm-hmm. didn't finish your meal, like that was the food. And, you know, particularly like my dad was a bit older. So the, you know, generational thing of, mm-hmm. you know, you have to eat this because otherwise there are kids in Africa who don't have food. Course, you know that, yes, that yes. mentality and you know eat up be grateful um we paid money for this food so it's really interesting how you still can have these rules around food that you learn through childhood and how informative those can be into your adult years and that like I say despite not it necessarily being that formal diet it's still there in your mind
0: absolutely yeah um,
1: And my second thought was, I wonder if, because I'm thinking my mum had her children like in the 90s. And, you know, I don't ever, I imagine if I asked her now, I don't ever remember her like being particularly stressed about what we were eating and, and this need for perfection, particularly when we were younger, and maybe like your children's age. And do you think social media has had a big impact on the pressure that mums feel like Pinterest pictures of like the bento boxes and you know star-shaped cucumber and all this stuff is is that do you I know you've written about this so what has the impact of social media been in all of this
0: oh it's huge but I first want to go back to what you were sharing yeah, about yeah. your so own I liked, stuff
1: I like to I like to talk long points so I, I apologize no 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 it's great it. <laughs> it's great no
0: I, these are both two really good points so I want to comment on both of them so um the dynamic you talked about with your family is so relatable. I think a lot of us had a version of that and just two quick things on the eating things one at a time. Um, that is a very common way for kids to eat and especially for new or cautious eaters to eat. And I'm with you. I like to combine the flavors. I also like, if I cooked the meal, I put, I'm just like your dad. I put a lot of thought into yeah. this and I know these flavors all taste good <laughs> together. Um But, you know, if you are just learning to chew food in your mouth, it might be really overwhelming to take a bite of something crunchy and then a bite of something smooth and then a bite of something stringy and have to, like, navigate all of that. You might want to, like, just deal with the crunchy food by itself. And, like, you know, so it's just interesting to think about it from a child development perspective, that kids are not always ready to, to eat like adults. And parents, a common mistake that parents make in all generations is expecting our kids to have adult-like palates and adult-like eating skills when they just don't. Um, So that's one thing to think in mind. And so, you know, there's a reason that a lot of kids' plates are sold with those divided compartments. And that's because a lot of kids work better with new foods if they're not touching other stuff and they can kind of like approach them. So one thing I always tell parents is, you know, Um, A, you should always be getting permission before putting a food on your child's plate. Like it's their choice to either let them serve themselves if they're old enough or say, you know, do you want green beans on your plate and how much and let them decide that you've decided the overall meal, they decide how much of it in which parts they eat. And so when you do that, you can kind of then mitigate some of that stress, because if they don't want green beans, they don't have to take green beans. And then that also really cuts down on the food waste part, right? Because if they Mm -hmm. haven't eaten the green beans or put them on their plate and mix them up with other stuff, it's a lot easier for me to save those leftovers. And the people who did like them can eat them the next day. Um, You know, so because this is something that comes up a lot, you know, we hear things like kids have to be exposed to a new food 30 times before they'll eat it. And that's, more or less true, at least in my house. And parents are like, but that's so wasteful. I don't want to have to feed a food that many times. And it's not that you have to get them to eat it that many times. It's that exposure could be like we what we did last night. They watched my husband and I share the steak and salad. Mm. They didn't eat it. I didn't even make that much because I knew they were unlikely to eat a lot of it. You know, so there was no waste. It got either. There might be leftovers that one of us will eat for lunch today. But, you know, like it was a normal amount of food. Um, so I think a big mistake is when we put these huge heaping portions on kids' plates. We don't take into account where they are developmentally with the meal, and then we get mad when they waste food. <laughs> and it's like, but you just ask them to, you know, like play pro level tennis, and they've never held a racket or something. Like they they're still learning this. So that's that piece of it. Social media. It's actually interesting to me that you link these two things together because I think they're really related. Social media and the way f- kid food is shown on Pinterest and on Instagram right now is almost always wildly out of line with the reality of how kids eat, and it completely creates this high-pressure expectation. I mean, I, uh, my podcast, podcast co-host and I send each other pictures all the time that we see on Instagram that'll be like a kid's lunchbox, and it'll be, you know, one of those beautiful bento lunchboxes, and there will literally be nine kinds of produce in the lunch, and I don't know about you, but like, I rarely eat a meal with nine kinds of produce produce in it and I'm an adult, you know, who can eat pretty big portions of things like where I think my child is going to need to sit at lunch and eat, you know, like radishes and purple cauliflower, you know, and have this rainbow of produce and then like a little piece of cheese and like three puffs of something it's really unrealistic because kids don't need to eat that much produce and they don't need to eat a rainbow every meal. And also like they're probably more hungry for the cheese and the crackers part of it. And you've just filled up their lunchbox with all the stuff. That's not going to fill them up. So then you're going to have a hangry kid in an hour because they didn't actually get a meal they could mm. eat. So yeah, it's really problematic. I think it definitely plays into the pressure parents feel around food and It's very important to step back and know most of those photos that you see were taken. They were not a meal any child ever actually ate or was even given. It was a photo taken for Instagram (laughs) and um, probably thrown away afterwards. So, yeah, I get really frustrated with that. I think there's a lot of mixed messaging. Another thing that happens on social media is that whole concept I just talked about, that division of responsibility model. It's gotten quite popular so, there are a number of influencers who talk about it now, but they're doing it through a diet culture lens. So, it's very similar to what we've seen happen with something like intuitive eating where that starts as this really non-diet, anti-diet approach. But then people will say like, oh yeah, I'm doing intuitive eating for weight loss. And it's like, how, that's not a thing. <laughs> Those two concepts don't make sense. Yeah,
1: they don't, we don't. We make that clear on the podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, you. I know you do. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the same thing happens with division of responsibility, where I'll see a mom saying like, I'm doing division of responsibility and all the food she's put on the table is this like rainbow, clean eating, perfect, you know, very diety sort of meal, when you are in charge of the what, you have to consider your children's preferences and what they'll eat and, like, what they'll feel good eating. You have to have some foods on the table that are really accessible to them. So, you know, we call them a safe food, and there should always, every meal, there should be one or two safe foods. So, yeah, I knew the steak and the salad were you know like a maybe for one kid and a definite no-go for the other but the reason there's cornbread and milk on the table is because I know they both really like those foods Mm. and they're not going to go hungry if that's what they eat for dinner so that's where we have to just relax yeah with these standards and really think about like what's going to work for our family and where our kids are.
1: Yeah it's really interesting to see how these things get yeah co-opted and and they kind of you know changed and to fit different people's things and what i know happens <laughs> is that if you are only serving your child fruit and vegetables for example and they're not allowed to eat sweets they're going to find them somewhere else oh, they're going to yes, go somewhere else it's like it's it's going to happen whether you want it to or not um and yeah would like you know this idea of the, the division of responsibility like wouldn't you much rather be the one there to kind of guide them through the process rather than um them you know their first time at a party a birthday party and you know they they're you know eating the whole birthday cake because they've never seen birthday cake before and it tastes delicious and Mm -hmm. oh my goodness I'm never gonna I am never going to i do not get this at home I'm gonna have to eat all of this now and so it's really in it's it's really interesting how yeah that I know so many of these things and you know, I think, I hope it goes without saying that we don't talk about these things with the judgment of, um, on parents and the decisions they're making because, you know, a lot of information out there is that, you know, your child should be eating gluten-free, organic, that clean, you know, clean. Um, and so you feel like you're doing the right thing, the best thing. Um, and so it's really refreshing <laughs> to hear your take on it and I know you've also written a lot about um and we spoke about we know we talk about a childhood and I'm going to use quote marks obesity crisis and this pressure on our child to be growing in a certain percentile and reaching reaching certain weights and I know you've recently written about the idea of like how this past year with a more sedentary life essentially um has led to weight gain and it's not just for chi- not just for adults for children too if they're not mm-hmm. able to get out and play like they did and sports you know clubs are cancelled and all those sorts of things so how yeah what are your thoughts about navigating that with all these pressures that parents are feeling um you know and with all this dialogue around you know children you not the pressure you know not just being on adults anymore it's on kids as well to to reach a body standard to to reach that a certain size
0: yeah it's it's really hard and again it comes back to you know this pressure that parents feel to live up to a really unrealistic standard and in this case a standard that they have virtually no control over you can control how you feed your kids you can i mean you can't control what they you can't make the meat, but you can control, you know, what we're talking about, like how you're approaching meals, the different dynamics in your family around food. You, you know, to some extent can control how active they are, although that has certainly gotten much more difficult in the past year. Um, but you can't control your child's weight. You, that is a factor about them that you have no control over. It was determined by genetics. It's determined by biology. It's influenced by larger factors in your environment, social determinants of health, all of these other things and their own growth trajectory, which you cannot know at this point in their life. You cannot know what their body size will be in six months, let alone five years, let alone when they're an adult. So there's a lot of anxiety because there's a lot of misconceptions around that. Parents feel like I should be in control of this. My worth as a parent is tied to my child's body size. And we need to forgive ourselves that we need to let ourselves off the hook from that Mm -hmm. because it's just not possible for you to actually control that. The other thing is there's a fair amount of misconception around what it means when a child gets bigger. I mean, for the most part, a child getting bigger is a good thing because we want them to be growing. And if they're not, like, gaining weight is a part of growing. So if your child hasn't gained weight in the past year, you know, that would be, can be a cause for concern. Like, why aren't they growing, you know? So that's something to think about. Like, this may be normal growth. And it may be normal growth even if they look arounder to you than they have in the past, Because lots of kids go through phases of being round. You know, toddlers can be round, preteens can be round. Um, It's a normal body type for lots of kids. Some of those kids are always going to be round. You know, maybe they were a big baby when they were born and they've always been at the top of the growth chart and that is their place, that is their body type. Other kids, it's going to be more erratic. They may round out for a while, and then they shoot up three inches, and it sort of evens out, and then they round out again. Other kids go through one growth spurt like that, but not, I mean, it's just, it's human variation. Every scenario you can think of, there's going to be a kid for that. So we have to keep that in mind. And often, especially I find parents say like around age 10, tends to be a real panic point where kids will look rounder suddenly, and parents and pediatricians will really panic about it and encourage families to work with a dietician or consider some sort of, you know, interventions. And then the child hits puberty and like the body type totally changes. So again, like think about where your child is and this might be normal. That said, you know, bodies do gain weight for reasons that are, you know, often tied to some other issue. It could be tied to all of the pandemic lifestyle changes. It could be that they're less active. The solution in that case is not to make your child lose weight. The solution is to think about how can you improve your overall lifestyle? And again, not with the goal of making them smaller, but with the goal of addressing everyone's mental health would be better if we could get outside more, you know, everybody's moods will be better. Wow, we sleep better when we move our bodies during the day. Mm. Um, You know, there's lots of ways in which, I mean, it's, it's difficult because in our culture, And you wrote about this so well in your book, um, that every conversation we have around weight, I mean, around health gets filtered through weight. So everything we talk about being sort of, quote, good for us, we always immediately tie it back to that means it'll make us smaller. And then if it doesn't make us smaller, it's like it's not worth doing or it doesn't exist. (laughs) And that's the opposite of how you want to approach this with kids. So yeah, your child may have gained weight in the last year. Most likely that was a good thing. If it, I mean, I hate to even say a bad thing, because that sounds so negative. Um, If it is for if it is due to a reason of, you know, some other issue, you want to focus on that issue if they're anxious if they're depressed. If you've totally lost track of a meal schedule because your life is a blur of working remotely and schooling remotely and, you know, mm. you guys aren't having family meals anymore because everyone's just so stressed, like, that's what you want to repair. to those dynamics and those mental health issues, not the weight. The weight might be a symptom, but it's not the problem to solve.
1: And isn't it so interesting that that absolutely reflects on adults as well? Oh, totally. We so want to micromanage the weight and, like, if we just solve that, that will solve all the issues, but actually... Let's look at all the other things going on. Let's look at the context within which this is happening. And rather than, like you say, focusing so specifically on the weight aspect, just kind of accepting that that is what it is. And, but we can, like you say, look after your mental health, we can help you, you know, move more and play more. I think especially for children and adults, actually, mm-hmm. not just children. We all need to play more yeah. and, you know, mm-hmm. have these experiences where, we're able to use our energy. I know I feel, I feel cooped up this past year and I don't feel, I don't feel like I've been able to be as active as I would like, but it is what it is. And you try mm-hmm. and do what you can when you can and, and how you enjoy doing it. And I think it's the same for children and the whole idea that we focus on health promoting behaviors, you know, it's the same the same thing for kids, but there's a lot of pressure. And I don't know if this happens in um, the US, but I do know in the UK that lots of children they they do weighing in schools, and so mm-hmm. you may get letters home about your child. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of shame around that. And I, I think that's one of the most frustrating parts that there's a lot of shaming done, um, and like you say, it's seen as a reflection of your parenting. Um, And yeah, I would, I wonder what your thoughts are for parents listening who maybe have been in that position or may well be in that position in the future.
0: Oh, it's a horrific practice. We have it in the US too, about, I think, 26 states or so require annual weighing or weighing at, you know, different age levels. And many states actually send it home as a, they call it a fitness gram or a BMI report card. So it's literally like we graded your child's body and here is the grade, which is I mean it makes my skin crawl it's such a terrible message. Yeah. And um yeah we have several studies showing that it is both a terrible message because it can make kids feel really bad about themselves it can push parents to think they have to take a more restrictive approach with food all of the sort of obvious things it also doesn't work if it's a you know a so-called ob- obesity prevention strategy air quotes around all of that um we have studies showing like my favorite study it was like on the one hand, they were like, the good news is only about, I don't know, say 20% of parents, that's not the number, but it was a small number, you know, said that this actually made their child more anxious about their bodies. So it's like, okay, that's kind of reassuring. It didn't have the negative effect. It's because 80% of the parents didn't even look at the letter. So it's yeah. like you put the kids through this stigmatizing way and experience. The letter goes home; it gets thrown out. I can say as a parent, we get a million pieces of paper a week. <laughs> I don't look at them all. Like mm-hmm. so, it was just like this sort of total waste of time that has that at best is a waste of time, and at worst has this potential to do huge harm. So yeah, the way ins are terrible um, in the U.S. at least you can opt your child out of it. Just either keep them home on weigh-in day or tell the school, you know, we're not going to participate in that. And I think the more of us who do that, the better. I don't know if that's an option in the UK, but it should be. So that's that piece of it. Um, Yeah. I mean, the other thing that you were saying that really resonated with me was about, you know, we all need more play. Mm. And with kids in particular, I think this is so important because Much like kids are actually much better at regulating their hunger and fullness than many adults are, and parents are often really surprised that they see their kids do this quite effortlessly when they switch over to division of responsibility, kids are also much better at being active in a very joyful, no agenda sort of way than grownups. And it's because they don't have all the baggage that we have. So again, I think the more you can kind of take the focus off viewing it as this thing I have to manage through weight, viewing it as this thing I have to control and just like, look at what your kid does naturally. And of course, kids vary. Some kids, I was not a very active child at all. All I really wanted to do was curl up with books or my dolls, you know, (laughs) like that was my um, baseline. I also grew up in an apartment. We didn't have outdoor space, you know, like I was very happy and just sort of an an indoor kid. Um, But, you know, I look at my kids and you know, we haven't been able to do swim lessons, rock climbing lessons, all the things they normally do. My older daughter is a kid who really needs to move. And she just like runs laps around our house in the, you know, like, like she will find a way, like this is, you know, the energy will get burned off somehow. So I don't actually feel like, I'm like, yes, she's less officially active. Cause I'm not taking her to swim lesson once a week, but she's like, taught herself to rock climb up the side of our stone fireplace so obviously she's love it yeah and like so proud of herself such joy such like like I want to just bottle it because she's so proud of her you know that she figured out how to climb up I mean it's also I hope she doesn't hurt herself but you know like it's I bet great. when
1: she's I bet when she's doing laps your dog loves it as well oh I mean, god just, yes I can mean, just picture this like quiet chaos. chaos
0: not quiet <laughs> yeah. um yeah yeah total chaos, but, uh, you know, but they have a great time. But yeah, so I think, you know, again, with movement, starting from a place of like, what does my kid already love to do? How can I support them in that versus saying, like, we're signing you up for whatever lessons, or we're signing, you're going to join the basketball team. Like, you know, what is your kid going to find, you know, what are they already doing? And how can you support that, I think is a better place to go. And if it is like, oh, you know, they used to love playing outside, but they don't do it, you know, look at why. Because the other thing that we have research on is, Kids are often very active until some of these body changes kick in. And then they be, especially girls, become dramatically less so. And that's incredibly troubling. And it's because they're much more self-conscious of being, you know, a little bit bigger, being, you know, they're just more conscious of their body on display. And so the more we can create safe spaces where that's not a concern for them, the better. So
1: I want to think about this from the angle of the parent as well, because I imagine that, so you know in the discussions like I have with with my um, boyfriend we often joke about I love tennis i really don't play very well at all but I love tennis and he loves rugby and we always joke that if we have children like they must play tennis they (laughs) must play rugby they must all these things obviously living vicariously through your offspring um and part of that's a joke part of them I probably would at least explore if they you know just to just to satisfy me a bit but I think it's really interesting how firstly I think there is that idea that parents do live vicariously through their children whether that be like the 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 character of like the stage mum dance school kid kind of thing that dynamic um but secondly because as a parent as an and as an adult we've gone through so much that we are therefore projecting a lot of our own stuff and our own relationship with food and exercise and stuff onto children. I saw the most heartbreaking TikTok video today and it was a TikTok of a, a girl, I presume, saying like, do you know how hard it is to live with a mum who's always on a diet and has an eating disorder and now we all have it too? And then proceeded to show all the different diet foods around the house, and then also showed, sadly, the stash of food that the mother binges on. It had nearly quarter of a million likes. Oh my gosh. So I think it's really, like, going on that app makes me realize that how prevalent this stuff is Mm -hmm. in the family dynamic and how normal it is for, you know, parents to be, victims of diet culture I really don't want to put the blame on on people going through that because I I really understand how hard that is to navigate when this is the dominant narrative and this is what it is you know Mm -hmm. like we've been you know we have been told for so long that thinner is better and what we should be pursuing and and all these things so what do we know about firstly how we as parents? become that role model when you know and we want to role model to the best of our abilities but whether we are role role modeling perhaps poor body image difficult complicated relationship with food and how important that is to a child's development in their relationship with food and body and and exercise
0: it's unfortunately hugely important and I say unfortunately because I parents have so much guilt like I think parents know that Mm. Um, and feel really bad about like the fact that they're possibly passing this on, Um, you know, two things that come up. um, Something that comes up a lot in my reporting is parents of kids who are in bigger bodies. If they themselves are bigger or were bigger as kids, their justification for wanting their child to lose weight is I don't want them to be bullied. I don't want them to go through what I went through. And that is like such a heartbreaking truth that I feel Mm -hmm. so deeply because I don't want my child to experience any negative, you know, I mean, it's so awful. Like the idea that your child would be bullied for their weight and they would feel that they are less valuable. Like it is so horrible. And so I completely understand that, but it's also completely the wrong message because what you're saying to your child is the culture doesn't like you the way you are. So you need to change. Mm -hmm. And it's the culture that needs to change. You know, you're teaching your child to give in to the bullies if you put them on a diet so that they don't get teased. Instead of trying to address it with the bullies, so that's one piece of it. Is we have to recognize that this is a systemic issue, this is culture wide, and it is not our child's responsibility to make themselves into something that's more palatable to the rest of the world. We never want to teach our children that they should be taking up less space. Mm. That's the opposite of what I think most of us want to do as parents. So. That's piece one. Um, Piece two is, you know, people say like, I don't want to pass this on. I don't want them to struggle with food or weight the way I do, but I just don't know how, like they're so trapped in their own stuff. They can't see how they won't pass it on. And like, how can they sort of insulate their kids when they themselves are not ready to let go of all this, or they're, you know, they're still stuck where they are. And that's also a really heartbreaking truth because, you know, we're, none of us are perfect. None of us show up to parenthood with the stuff sorted out. And so we all have stuff. We're all going to pass on our flaws to our children in some ways, they're like they're going to be aware of something, you know? And so there is some good news on that front. Um, there are a couple of really nice studies that show what we say matters tremendously. And so like one study that was done on mother-daughter pairs. And by the way, it's always on mothers. And it makes me really mad because dad's all of the supplies to you too. But the study was done on mothers and daughters and the mothers had eating disorders. And they found that the mothers that talked negatively about food and body, the daughters were more likely to start dieting at an early age. The mothers who had eating disorders, but did not talk negatively The daughters were less likely to start dieting at an early age. So even if you yourself are struggling, if you can change the conversation you have, not use, you know, definitely never shame your child's body. Also, don't verbalize shame about your own body to them. You know, don't say things like, I'm so fat or I'm so bad for eating that. You know, if you can avoid that narrative, it will really benefit your child. It will help insulate them a little bit. I mean, they're still going to know that, wow, mommy doesn't eat carbs and that's weird. You know, they're still going to be aware of your behavior. So that would be the next goal, but just as a starting point is something that you can do even if you can't sort of do the rest of it, that can have a big impact. Um, and you know, what I found personally, and I want to be clear, I've never had a full bone eating disorder, but I've engaged in, you know, lots of dieting and body shame stuff. Um, And what I found personally was when I made that really big commitment, I can remember when my older daughter was around two, I said something shaming about my body at the dinner table. Like I was talking to my husband and I made some sort of offhand comment, like, oh, I hate my body right now or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And my two-year-old started patting her body and she was like, it's my body. It's my body. (laughs) And I was like, what? What?" (laughs) She heard me. Oh my God. Oh my God. And it wasn't a negative thing. I think she literally she was under two, so she was really just starting to recognize words. And I think she was just like, I know what a body is. Mommy's talking about a body. I've got one too. But I was like, Oh gosh. She's <laughs> you know, a sponge. She's a sponge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in three months, she is gonna be able to repeat back, I don't like my body, or whatever I had said. And I don't want this, I cannot allow this. And I really that day I was like. I will never say that out loud in front of her again like even if I'm feeling it inside even if I'm having a day where I'm struggling like she will hear nothing but positive things from me and that has been true ever since and the cool thing about making that commitment to your kids is it does force you to start changing the conversation in your own head you know because you have to start by like just stopping it before it comes out and then you're like well wait why am I why am I saying, you know, why am I thinking it, how I'm thinking it a lot, you know, but then maybe you're thinking it a little less or you're more able to sort of recognize like, well, I'm actually just thinking that because I didn't sleep well last night. I'm really stressed about work. And whenever, you know, my anxiety is high, I immediately start to body check. And that's what this is. So that's been a really helpful strategy for me personally. And it is also, as it turns out, research supported, which is nice
1: let's quickly talk about the dad's aspect because like you say that doesn't get spoken about enough and I think I saw like a tweet you did recently and you're like it was like dad's intermittent fasting or whatever it is (laughs) yes I see you (laughs) yes
0: yes exactly um yeah men and diet culture is so interesting because on the one hand like dieting is not considered very manly you know I mean like brands like weight watchers or jenny craig or you know like their audience is like very women focused mm-hmm. and so for a long time i think we thought of dieting as this thing that really only women do but that's completely not the case um, not in
1: fitness virginia it's,
0: it's, well it's the yes. gym bros
1: that's that's, <laughs> exactly. that's how they get pulled in exactly and, and so tech entrepreneurs saying i like mm-hmm. you know, I don't eat- for two days and then right. I'm, and I'm a billionaire. So I do what I do. and you're like, Exactly. Uh-huh. So
0: yeah. So there's this whole other part of diet culture that's very <laughs> male dominated, the macros and keto and paleo. And I don't know why they all end to know um, all these weird trends. Um, and yes, intermittent fasting for sure. And what I find when I talk to men about diet culture, when I talk to women, there's often this kind of relief of discovering something like body positivity, like even if they're not all the way there, even if they're still dieting and struggling, they're like, "Oh, this world exists where you're not shamed for being fat. this is amazing. Like I could someday live in this, you know, nirvana. When you when men are exposed to the body positivity movement or the fat acceptance movement, they find it a lot more threatening. They find it really sort of, You know, and it really gets into more of like the cultural misogyny that we have, where it's like, wait, all of these people who are not thin white men suddenly are living their lives and being fine and not defining themselves according to thin white male standards. And like, that is extremely scary to me. So now I'm going to be a troll who shows up on your Instagram and says things like, what about health? And, you know, like all of these, like, you're just lazy and want to eat all day. Like all those horrible comments that come from predominantly men. Mm. So yeah, the men are not okay, is the short answer. (laughs) They're really struggling. And it's because diet culture markets the same toxic masculinity that they're like striving to live up to, feeling like they don't live up to. And then like wanting to sort of lash out at other people who are saying, actually, I don't care about that. So that's really interesting.
1: I definitely noticed that and a lot of the pushback. So this week in the UK, we had um a doctor go on a national tv show to debate um weight loss as a almost like as a prescription I I haven't seen the actual debate so I'm gonna not talk too much on it but essentially it was her versus a a white male um Mm -hmm. who is not a doctor is actually a psychologist but is this big weight weight loss guru oh god kind of like you know that kind of two ends of the spectrum yeah yeah Um, but what was really interesting was that the people who have the biggest reaction to that, and then equally, we had a plus size, uh, woman on a cover of cosmopolitan magazine here Mm in the UK, Callie, and she, um, and equally with Jessamyn Stanley included in the article and just the end with it being called, this is healthy. And then the backlash from all that I predominantly saw it being from men. Yeah, like this idea that women aren't tied to these rules anymore and Mm -hmm. they are gonna exist and show up in the world how they want to show up Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. is massively threatening whether even it's consciously acknowledged whether that's a that that's a conscious motivation from the male perspective of like you know how dare they Mm -hmm. I think it's just so ingrained that you know women should always be worried about their appearance and when they're not that's emasculating or that you know it it, is that that kind of that toxic masculinity thing um it's really interesting interesting i have a lot of conversations with my partner who's not very never been diety ever which is part of the reason i managed to get so much better with my relationship with food however We have so many conversations. He desperately wants to understand health every size. He wants to understand these approaches that he just wasn't exposed to. He loves sport. That's what he loves doing. And that's that. And we just have a lot of these conversations around, you know, these different topics. And, you know, hearing his perspective is always so kind of eye-opening because it's like there is just this sort of order to things and there are just the way things are done. And any deviation from that kind of doesn't feel... Quite right and I also think for men um, a lot of the you know that that feeling of being a manly man is having visible muscles is oh, yeah. Yeah. you know having a certain body type and and so that there is a certain pressure uh, pressure there and, and a body standard for men as well um, to a lesser degree I think you know not quite so as intense. But it is certainly there. And it's just really interesting to see that now we're seeing these dynamic shifts. And I, I think um, like Gen Z, millennials, like we're discovering feminism almost earlier mm-hmm. and we're kind of pushing back earlier and thanks to social media. So it's oh, and, no. and I, I see a lot of the, the men calling out these things, you know, shaming always shaming women that's what really gets me it's the personal attacks on women that are so disgusting and it's because they're they're threatened that they're, they're you know their 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 part in the pecking order is might be changing
0: and well and also you know most of the research on weight loss is done by men um, you know, just because of the way society works, like more scientists are men, um, yeah, and you yeah. know, so you have that. And so there's a lot of men with a really strong financial stake in the diet industry exactly. continuing. But then also, you know, I have a partner who so sounds a lot like your partner, who's like never had to sort of personally wrestle with these issues. And what we often talk about is like, there's a sort of fallacy of like, if it works for me, it must work for everyone. And if you are a thin white man and you have been a thinner, you know, thinner white man most of your life, and you also really love running and are good at running, then you think, well, all anyone has to do in order to be thin is to run like me. And that'll, that then why don't you, I don't understand. And it's like impossible for them to understand that like running's not accessible to everybody not everyone has your knees like you know if I've had two babies I'm not going to be up, my knees are not up for it anymore like whatever that's you know an example but no, um, this is
1: actually about ve- like I've had the running conversations my, yeah my boyfriend just casually ran a half marathon on the weekend like oh no big this is deal. my husband
0: too that's and so funny <laughs> yes
1: me doing 5k it's very much a walk run 5k and yeah. I'm, yeah. you know I've had enough at the end of it
0: yeah and we just um,
1: interested and, in different things and it's so interesting that and his his perspective is exactly that like the the way we you know always hit, like the love of rugby and sport and I you know I think sport really has a place and for so many aspects um for children for like ca- you know character building and teamwork and mm-hmm. and self-esteem but it's really interesting that that's often the answer to all the issues yeah so, and that know, they haven't a team.
0: Right. Right. And they haven't considered that that's not accessible or interesting to other. Yeah. Like I might just want to do different things with my time. I might find walking the dog in the woods just as relaxing and restorative and all the things you get from running or, you know, ice climbing or whatever you want to do. Um, I don't need to do it at a level 50 for it to be special for me. Um, And so, yeah, we need to sort of validate the more diversity of experience. But yeah, I think it's Also, you know, the other thing is then when we bring it back to parents, you know, dads do a lot of damage because they're applying this, like, you have to eat, according to XYZ, you have to be, you know, you have to follow these rules that I've always followed and they work for me. So they must be the truth. They also get it really tied up with behavior and like thinking that kids are being well behaved if they follow these rules. And that really troubles me because. And moms can do that too, but I just particularly see this dynamic with fathers sometimes. Um, And it troubles me because what you're doing when you're telling your child to finish their plate or to eat a food they eat or to play on a sports team, because that's what you, you know, you wanted them to do. What you're doing to them is you're saying, use your body in a way that doesn't feel comfortable to you in order to please me. And like, That is a very messed up message to give your child, especially any female-identifying children who are then going to go on to navigate sexual relationships. Like, I don't want my daughters to think that they owe other people their bodies in any way, shape, or form. And so it is really important to me that we don't push food and that we don't force them to put something in their body they don't want in their body because I want them to know they always have that ability to say no. And same with movement, you know, if they don't want to play a sport, or they don't want to do an activity, because it doesn't feel safe to them. I'm not going to, you know, my daughter loves climbing, but she has a certain height that she goes to, and she's not comfortable pushing past that. If you go to rock climbing lessons, you'll see the parents saying like, you can get up there, go higher, go higher. And I'm like, why would I want my child to learn from this, that I should push out of my comfort zone, and do something that's terrifying to me in order to make you proud. Mm. Like, that's a really messed up message. And I do see that very tied up in male culture. Um, And I just think, you know, a more positive way of framing it is to realize that the way you approach food and activity with your kids is laying a foundation for them to really understand what consent is, to really understand that they are in control of their bodies. Like, we are teaching those lessons really early through food and exercise or, you know, play, whatever, that are going to be a really useful foundation when it comes to other things they're going to do with their bodies consent is yeah
1: that's so interesting how it's all starts so young and I mean we get informed on this stuff so young and this idea and and just even in general I think if we're talking about just generally the idea of people pleasing in general right just this idea of like do the eat this to please me do Mm -hmm. this to please me and what I love about intuitive eating um and just the, the core message of that is you're doing what's best for you as an individual and you're making the choice and you have autonomy. And yes. that's so such a key pillar of of this and, and of intuitive movement as well, that it's so yeah, important to kind of not yeah, not not bribe your kids into doing things. Right. I mean right. so this is one thing actually I did want to bring up, um, was this idea of rewarding. Mm -hmm. um children with you know you get to have if you get good if you get a good grade we can go and have mcdonald's or if you get a thing we can have
0: sweets and
1: stuff what's the what's the division of responsibility take on
0: that division of responsibility says don't do it don't use food as rewards (laughs) (laughs) um and but i have a little bit of a more nuanced take so Officially, I think that's completely right. I think if you want to treat foods as like all foods are emotionally equivalent, you should not use foods as punishment or as reward because you're immediately tying different emotional values to those foods. You know, the research shows it doesn't like it'll only cause kids to fixate more on the reward foods. And like, especially if you're using like, you know, you, you can't have dessert until you eat X. Like, oh, throw, that was another one for me. Yeah. Yes. Well, you're only going to dislike carrots or broccoli or whatever it is more because it's like this, you know, thing you've got to slog through. Yes. I resent this. I, I resent these the carrots. <laughs> I want the cake. Exactly. So it's a dumb strategy just based on human psychology. It's not how kids are wired or anyone's wired to like food. Um, Yeah, and so when teachers use, you know, often they'll hand out M&Ms as prizes for things like you're adding so much value to those foods that we want kids to just be able to enjoy for their own sake on their own terms and not feel this frantic like I only get it if I'm good I only get it if I do this so yeah that's a really problematic way to approach it. So whenever possible, especially if it's little kids, you can pretty much always use a sticker. Like kids love stickers. They go nuts for them. And I don't really have any concerns that children are going to feel like, you know, overly defined about a sticker, like fixate on stickers. So like potty training, like any of those things where you might want to give rewards, like try stickers instead is usually what I say. Um, Or, you know, rethink whether rewards are really, you know, the other thing is like, there's a lot of, there's a whole science on rewards and like They only work up to a point and they usually only work if the child has internal motivation to do the thing anyway. So like stickers is not going to potty train your child unless your child's ready to potty train. But that's a different podcast. Um, Anyway, that said, there are times where it's the line between like what is a treat and what is a reward can feel kind of blurry. And I'll give you an example. Just last night that dinner I talked about earlier, my daughter had asked, um, So over last summer, we were in this habit of having ice cream every day because it was hot and we were in quarantine and there was nothing to do. And so we came up with like, you know, it was like, we called it like 3 p.m. ice cream and we would have ice cream every afternoon on the front porch. And it was this really nice ritual and like way of like getting us out of the house and, you know, Mm -hmm. enjoy some ice cream. And then, of course, like we stopped because there's two feet of snow on the ground right now. So I don't going
1: to do it. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: don't really think about ice cream. And yesterday afternoon, my seven-year-old who does not eat seasonally, was like, why haven't you let us had ice cream in so long? <laughs> and I was like, because it's winter. I didn't think that sounded fun. I mean, we've had like lots, like, we bake brownies practically every weekend. Like we have lots of other treats, but she was like appalled that she suddenly realized she had been living a temporarily deprived existence around ice cream <laughs> due to, again, there literally being two feet of snow on the ground. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I think we have some in the freezer. We can have it with dinner tonight. That's fine. And- Often with treats, if we're going to have treats with a meal, I serve them right alongside the rest of the food because that really helps neutralize it further. Like, yeah, take a cookie, take your broccoli, whatever. It's all up for grabs. I don't do that with ice cream because ice cream melts and it gets messy and it's just tricky to fit in that way. So ice cream is always an after dinner thing. Then my husband says to me, oh, we need them to clean the playroom tonight for whatever other reasons like they hadn't done it we'd been saying you guys have to clean the playroom and he was like well why don't we say they have to clean the playroom and then get ice cream and I was like ah we can't do that (laughs) now we've made a contingent on cleaning the playroom Mm. but it was also just really like it fit the flow of the evening better, because we knew if dinner took too long, they'd be too tired to clean the playroom. So we ended up doing it that way. But we just said like, hey, we're going to have dinner, we're going to clean the playroom, and then you'll get ice cream. And I didn't say you have to clean it perfectly to like, get the ice cream. If you clean
1: your thing, you'll get right. ice
0: Right. I didn't say like, if you don't clean the playroom, there won't be ice cream. I just said like, hey guys, the order we're going to do stuff in is like dinner, playroom, ice cream, because it just makes more sense in the flow of our evening. Sorry, that was like a really... Specific example, but I think parents I think listening really will really relate. Yeah, I think it was very helpful because it just reframed it from like, because it would have been really easy to say, like, well, if you want ice cream, you have to clean the playroom. Um, and instead, it was like, no, no, ice cream is totally fine, but we are going to do it after the playroom because I want to get that done and not have you cleaning it when you're tired and grouchy and, you know, like, and you need to go to bed. So, so I think whenever possible, avoid the reward thing. The other thing though, is like, sometimes I'll use food. There's, it's also okay to use food as comfort and that's different from a reward. So like when we had to go get COVID test for the first time, we got donuts on the way home because it's pretty scary for two little kids to get COVID tests. And I felt like we all needed like a little uplift and stopping for donuts is one of their favorite things to do. I didn't think that was a reward for getting the COVID test, but I suppose you could say like, oh, you kind of you know, you linked these two things. But it, to me, that was more about, like, now we're all kind of frazzled from the stressful experience and food is really a useful tool for helping us, like, you know, regulate and calm down and feel safe again. So it's a complicated question. It is,
1: and I think it's important to highlight the nuance of it and and how it it's, yeah, not necessarily like a, a black and white situation. Right. And interestingly enough, uh. Episode last week was all about emotional eating. So we kind of covered this. Excellent. um, Not necessarily from a kid's perspective, but in the sense that, yeah, we know emotional eating. Hopefully, if everyone's keeping up to date with episodes, we know it's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. um, And it certainly has its place. And I think that's a lovely, lovely
0: example. Yeah, you need a pick me up sometimes, and food can be a wonderful tool for that. And you know, for kids to learn the value of a comfort food, I think is actually a really great skill. Like it's a really, you know, I love, you know, when schedules have been sort of crazy, my three-year-old figured out that a routine she really loves in the morning is for her to have some cheese and a water bottle and me to read her a book. And she will say like, can I have my cheese, my water bottle, and you'll read me a book. And like, that is like a little connection, comforting time that just makes her feel like a little more anchored when, you know our routines are very in flux right now because of COVID. So, seeing your kids like find those moments, like you don't think like oh God, why does she want to like you know that's not a bad thing. That's like her really like knowing how to take care of herself.
1: And isn't it interesting? I don't know about you, but I certainly have fallen into a lot of. I've been eating a lot of childhood foods in mm-hmm. this pandemic because oh, I totally. find it really comforting. And rem- today I, for lunch, we decided to go to. um m which I think is kind of like Trader Joe's. You know how oh, it's I know exciting M&S. and has like fancy food.
0: Yes, it has very um, fancy food.
1: <laughs> and it was really exciting because there's one open near us and we didn't realize. And it was a bit of a excursion, bearing in mind, I haven't been outside the house for three days because we've also had snow minus temperatures. Um, so it's just really cold and we don't want to go outside. So we go out and everything. And I got some food that I used to have as my lunch on like my first weekend job when I was like 17 years old and I literally bought the exact same lunch because (laughs) it just I don't know it just made me it was just like oh this is this brings back this memory of just kind of being young and the world felt less heavy and I had less pressure to deal with things and I didn't have as much adult responsibility as I do now and there's certain things I really love about that and similarly by um I made angel delight a few times I don't know if you have that but mm-hmm. it's uh, my mum used to make it with chopped banana in and I made that like a, quite a few times because it's just reminds you of totally like, I don't know a safer experience an easier experience and it's so interesting that I wonder if your daughter will be like cheese bottle book when she's like <laughs>
0: 30 <years> oh old. <laughs> I'm sure she'll have <laughs> yes um yes I think I think there will be many things we've eaten during this pandemic um that will be comfort. And you know, do you know what one of my biggest comfort foods is? I don't know if you know this about me, but I am half British. Marmite on toast is my go-to. And believe me, my American family does not understand. No,
1: it has to be really buttery. I've been having it on a bagel specifically. Ooh, Marmite on
0: a bagel is great. Yeah.
1: It's so good. Yes. I'm, 100% with you on that. Yeah,
0: my husband's always like, what is this disgusting substance? And I will say about Marmite is, I think you have to be fed it from a young age um, because, you know, I ate it as a baby. It was my mother's British, so she fed it to me. And- you know, with my older daughter, one of the sadnesses of her feeding tube years is I don't think I exposed her to Marmite early enough, but my younger daughter likes it because she got it as a baby. Well, this is another
1: thing. I think I like Marmite because my mom used to make Marmite and cheddar cheese sandwiches as a standard packed lunch. Oh good. Yeah. It was a
0: standard family day
1: out lunchbox staple. And I feel like as we got older, we got like, it was more like tomatoes or cucumbers and mm. my brother I remember my brother I always had them I'm like I want the cheese and marmite <laughs> I feel like, I'm gonna have to have a cheese and marmite sandwich now I
0: know it. I think I'm having that for lunch now
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> um okay so I would love to know um I'm conscious of time so um I would love to know what advice you do have for parents who are kind of like okay I want to do this I want to um I want my children to have the relationship with food and their body that I probably, I might not have had. Um, And I want them to avoid the pitfalls, you know, that I perhaps um, got caught up in. Where do parents start with all this stuff? Where can they, I don't know, even begin to,
0: I don't know. It can feel really overwhelming because reprogramming how your family approaches food. There's just so many different interactions and moments around it throughout the day that it can feel very difficult. So I think it's helpful to just like pick one place to start. And that might be one meal. Um, It might be like a small goal of like, I am going to stop pressuring my kids to clear their plates, or I'm going to stop pressuring them to eat more of whatever Cause you probably fall into one of either camps or maybe a little bit of both. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's like number one is like, if you can stop narrating that pressure to your children, that goes a really long way. And with older kids, you may need to say to them, Hey, I've realized I, you know, put a lot of pressure on you around food. I want to start trusting you to do it more on your own. So, you know, from now on, whatever's on the table, you can pick how much you're going to eat. And I'm not going to say a word and I promise, and you can hold me to it, you know, and then you can even make it a game. Like, cause then if you do say something, it could be like, they can call you out on it. And, you know, like you have to put a dollar in a jar or whatever, like make it more of, you know, so that they know you really mean it. And, um, you know, because it's going to take them some time to trust that. And what you're going to see initially, if you've been really restrictive in the past, they're probably going to eat a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of whatever food you've been restrictive around. And that's going to be very uncomfortable for you because this is your worst nightmare. And this totally doesn't seem like it's working, but it is working. It just, they need to have that time of habituating to the food of sort of understanding that they can trust you and to not, and to like get away from that scarcity mindset, So honestly, just getting through that process can be so tough. I would just do that. And, you know, that would be where I'd start. You know, once you kind of start to build that trust and communication around food, then I think you could look at, like, how do we get on more of a schedule? Because especially with toddlers who really love to graze, getting on a meal schedule can be really challenging. So I would probably next work on refining the schedule. Um, And, you know, from there you'll just sort of start to see different areas that need work because stuff will come up and it'll, mm-hmm. you know, often it'll come up and it will feel like this isn't working. And usually that means you need to step back and say, well, where am I still being restrictive? Where am I still being controlling? And you know, what do I need? Or if you're a family who really had no structure before, like where do we need a little more structure and finding that balance? Um, and I have written many articles that cover many aspects of this. So <laughs> feel free to check those out for resources and, um, and yeah, people can send me their questions too. I also tackle these questions in my newsletter. So feel free to reach out with questions and I'll see what I can do.
1: Amazing advice. Um, and I suppose one question, I, an add-on with that is, and something we didn't speak about, but maybe we can quick, briefly touch on, is the idea of, okay, that happens in the family home. And then what happens when you're exposed to like grandparents who do things oh like a really old school way or, you know, <laughs> even just going to someone else's house in in this eventually one day in the UK we're not going anywhere so um, <laughs> we're not able to go anywhere so one day when we're able to do play dates again or you know sleepovers with friends and and grandparents how do we I don't know how do we help our child navigate that or do we say things to the other adults in our lives and That is a
0: tricky one. I mean, I often feel like a unicorn a little bit because our approach can be quite different. I mean, I have, I can remember hosting a play date You know, so the like when your kids are little, like the other parent always comes Mm. to you. And we were putting lunch out for the kids. And I was about to put a plate of cookies down on the table next to the sandwiches. And she was like, Oh, hide those, hide those. If my kid sees them, he'll go crazy. He won't eat any other food. And I was like, Oh, but my kid is used to having a cookie next to her sandwich and it's no big deal. So that's awkward because, Mm. (laughs) and you know, that one, to be honest, I was like, didn't want to hurt her feelings. And I put the cookies away and I felt weird about it. And I didn't love how I handled it. Um, but now I think I would say something like, um, you know, oh, in this house, all foods are equal. So we just put things out and let the kids pick and choose. And if it's my house, I'm going to hold to my rules and not feel like I have to change. If I'm at someone else's house, I'll sometimes say to my kids, you know, like, they might do meals a little differently than how we do them. You know, so my kid kind of knows going in that like, you might have to wait for dessert this time. Cause you know, that's how they do it. Sometimes I framed it as like, you know, sometimes when people have fancy meals, they eat foods one at a time, <laughs> like, you know, cause if you're in a restaurant or something, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like it's okay to understand that that's like a different structure. Um, but yeah, it's very tricky. Um, I I think it takes a lot of sort of like feeling strong in your own values to be able to interject in the moment. And even as someone who feels very strong in my values, I haven't always been able to do that, but it's okay to have a follow-up conversation about it. You know, like one time we were somewhere and somebody, another adult started making comments about my daughter's different body sizes, like talking about how one is like, you know, thinner and one is in like the different shapes that they have. And I was like, (sighs) you know, and it wasn't someone who I felt like I could say like, please shut up right now, (laughs) please stop it. But later I said to my older daughter, the baby, you know, at that point was little enough that she wouldn't have understood it. I said, you know, Hey, did you notice what so-and-so said? And did you have any questions about that? And as it happened, she was like, I was playing Legos. I didn't really hear it. But even so, I was like, well, you know, I just want to make sure you understand, like, all bodies are good. There's no, you know, thin bodies are not better than fat bodies. All bodies are the same. And just follow up that way. So sometimes it's something like, it's going to happen. This is the world. This is what most people are swimming in. But know that you can either sort of talk about it ahead of time or talk about it afterwards, and as your kids get older, like they may sort of enjoy being able to spot it with you, like spot the diet culture with you and sort of report back and then you can help them navigate it. Um, so that's that's kind of good to know about. Um, grandparents is like a whole other thing we could do a whole podcast episode about <laughs> <laughs> because talking to your parents or talking to your in-laws can be very fraught. But I do say, think that it's important for parents to realize like you advocating for your child in those situations is really important for your kid to see. It's really important for your kid to know that even if grandma says things about their body or says things about their eating habits that you don't agree with her and you don't believe it and you totally accept your child's body. Mm. So, however that looks for you, if you can say, like, hey, mom or dad, we are not food shaming. I mean, I have said, like, we don't, all foods are equal here. We don't shame foods. I'll just like throw it into a conversation and see, you know, various relatives sort of be like, oh, right, Virginia and her, you know, <laughs> that whole thing. Um, <clears throat> or say to them ahead of time, like, you know, where if you have a really cautious eater, you could say something like, you know, we're really aware, you know, we're working on helping her feel more comfortable with food. She's doing great on her own terms. So we're just, it's really important. We don't put pressure on her. So please follow my lead on that. And then if they still do it in the moment, you can say like, Hey, you know, please follow my lead. We're not talking about food that way. Um, so it is, it's really hard to set those boundaries, but, um, you know, you can kind of figure out a a mode of doing so that feels accessible to you. And again, even if you can't fully set them, you can always follow up with your child and say like, yeah, grandma has some really sad beliefs about foods and bodies. And, you know, we don't think that way.
1: I suppose I have one last follow up, follow up question on that in the sense of if you're the person, because I find this sometimes I'm put in situations where someone makes a comment about a child's eating habits or body or food. And I'm there like, this is not my child. Mm-hmm. I don't want to shame anyone for saying anything because I know this is, you know, it's hard enough as it is being a parent. Um, and you kind of like, you want to bite your tongue a lot because, you know, it's tough to hear, to hear, you know, things that you know aren't helpful, you know could be detrimental further down the line. Um, I don't know. How do you navigate that? Do you Do you kind of have that boundary of like, you know, it's not my job to save everyone or, you know.
0: Yeah, that's such a tough one. So, okay, so it's not my child. I'm overhearing another parent make a yeah. comment to their child.
1: Do you have that program? Actually, oh, I've, seen, I've seen it on YouTube where it's uh, the program. It's like, what would you do or something like yeah. that? And it's yeah. always like a scenario. And I did see a scenario when a, a mother, act, actress mother, was being mm-hmm. particularly horrible to her daughter and saying, no, you need to lose weight to, uh, t- child's like 11 or 12. You need to make sure you lose weight before you get that dress. No, you can't wear that. You look too fat in that dress. I'm just saying all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and lots of people did step in and I found that mm-hmm. interesting. But it's That's when it's the more subtle thing of, yeah, you know, of like, um, I don't know, I don't know, even saying, commenting on a child going, oh, you know, she's got a big tummy or right, right, legs right. or something, you know.
0: I'll often find parents will, like if we're, there's play date, kids are sort of playing in the background, so they're not necessarily right there. Parents will say something like, so-and-so is a terrible eater. And I'm just like, why are you like bad-mouthing your child? Like they're in earshot. And also like, it's just a negative, it's such a negative way to frame a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, something, so it's going to really depend on your relationship with the person. Um, for a comment like that, I might say something like, oh it sounds like you guys are struggling with food like what's going on tell me about it and like ask a question and then maybe as they offer more I could say something you know I would say like well I've written an article about but honestly sometimes that's yes. obnoxious you, um, do, you, know, could you say- do you do really <laughs> have the benefit of going like read this. But honestly, that can be off-putting. So you might even just say like, I've read it. I just read an article about this, or I just read a book about this. And it, you know, it was so interesting. They were saying that the research shows such, you know, Mm -hmm. um, just like, I think of it much more, you can't save everybody. And there are times when it's not appropriate to try, but I think you can view it as like, can I plant a small seed? Um, And I have had a few occasions where I planted a small seed. And later on, that friend came back to me and was like, okay, wait, but what about this? Or, you know, now I have more questions. And so over time, we were able to sort of, like, gradually move towards something. Um, you know, the other thing is modeling, like, like if somebody shames a child's body, like, you know, says something fat shaming, I might find a way to say something fat positive, maybe not related to the child, but just, like, in conversation, you know, or maybe about myself or you know, like, uh, like just find a way to insert some counter-programming and especially like just to kind of make that kid aware that like there are other perspectives, not everybody feels this way. And if that's a child who's in your life regularly, it might be great if they see you as like a safer person, Mm -hmm. someone who understands a different perspective on this. So yeah, I think that would be where I'd go with it. It's like, look for ways to plant some small seeds. You know, certainly if it's someone who I have a really close relationship with, I would say like, I'm really, you know, then you could maybe take them aside and say like, I'm really concerned about how you're talking about her body or talking about food and you know, this is why but that's not going to work probably if it's just like, you know, a random acquaintance at the playground or, you know, something you've overheard in a grocery store kind of thing so yeah, we can't save everybody but you know. Getting this message out here is is the work. So we're doing what we can.
1: It is. And I know you're a big reader. And I just wondered if you had any just lovely, you know, you know, kind of like body positive books for kids where they mm-hmm. can see different bodies being celebrated and talked about. And similarly with food, I just wondered if you knew any off the top of your head. And if you do, I can link them in the show notes.
0: Sure. So picture books. Um, my favorite picture book right now for body positivity is called Your Body is Awesome. And I cannot pronounce the author's name because I think she's Danish and it's very long. But it's a really lovely picture book, very diverse, gender diversity, racial diversity, talking about like, you know, how great, all the things our bodies do for us. And it says quite explicitly that a fat body is not better or worse than a thin body. We need variety. It sort of makes this lovely analogy to flowers. Like we have all different types of flowers in the world and all different types Mm. of bodies. So that's a really sweet one. And it's great for like my three-year-old has it memorized, you know, great for little kids, but older kids will get something out of it too. Um, For food, A food book I'm loving right now for kids is called Our Little Kitchen, and it's by Jillian Tamaki. It's a picture book, and it is about this neighborhood in Brooklyn where they come together and cook a community meal once a week. And it's, again, really diverse, really different body sizes, abilities, people all coming together to make this meal. And it talks about food in such a lovely, positive, comforting way with no weird health messages, diet messages. And my favorite part, like I honestly tear up almost every time I read it, is at the end of the meal, it says, is your body warm, is your belly full, is a way of like asking kids how they feel at the end of a meal. And I just Aww. like, I love it. I like, love that. That's yeah. what you want to feel at the end of a meal. Like, is your body warm, is your belly full? And so, yeah, that one I think is really beautiful. Um, for older kids, I just finished um, Fat Chance Charlie Vega by Crystal Mall. Maldonado sorry Crystal I think I mispronounced your last name it's a young adult novel um, told from the perspective of a fat brown teenage girl like working on her body acceptance Um, such a sweet 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 novel like really amazing characters really amazing parent-child relationship and it is a romance and the you know the romance is sort of what you expect but it's like really positive from the point of view of the girl Mm. Um, and she's like really in control of her body and I just like it was lovely. So that's a great young adult novel that I would encourage parents to get for your teenagers or middle school, you know, sort of like 11 and up
1: probably. I will make a note of those and make sure that those are shared in the show notes for everyone if you wanted to get those books. Um, And I have to finish our discussion because I believe we could talk for hours but I have (laughs) to finish our discussion by asking um Virginia have you had a recent train happy moment a moment of I'll describe it a moment of you know being in connection with your body whether it's with movement rest play whatever it is
0: yes I was thinking about this question because I knew you were going to ask it and I realized I'm having so many train happy moments right now nice. that it's sort of like become more of the norm than it ever was. Um, and I have to give my pandemic puppy a lot of credit because a lot of it is just being able to get out of the house and take her for walks in the mm. woods. And, you know, it's technically about fitness, but, you know, also just being out in the woods and, you know, that's been really great. Um But actually one happened just earlier this week, which is, so the other thing I do for movement is I do yoga every day. Um, And, you know, I, it can be like just 10 minutes of yoga. It can be 45 minutes. I never have more time than that. I would love to, but, you know, like, you know, it's just like, I try every day to have a little time for myself on my yoga mat before my kids wake up. And it's just like something that really centers me. And I realized recently that I like hadn't broken this daily streak in a couple of months, not sort of super consciously. It's just been like something I wanted to do every day. And then I started to get a little in my head, like, well, now what, if I skip a day, what will it mean? And you know, like, like, what is this all about? And um, then the other day I woke up with really bad cramps and, you know, in the past, this would have been an automatic, like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm absolutely not getting on my yoga mat. I have cramps, I have to lie in bed all day kind of thing. And that's fine. Like of course there's times where your pain is so bad you should not exercise. But instead I was like, I know I'm really look forward to this. Like I'll just go lie on my yoga mat, <laughs> you know, and like do a couple of stretches. And so it was interesting that I didn't have this feeling cuz in the past I wouldn't have done it and I would have felt like a failure, right? Like I wouldn't have sort of really allowed the cramps to be a good reason. It would have been like, oh, I didn't work out, I'm so bad. And instead I was like I'm going to lie here for 10 minutes and like do some child's pose and do some twists. And like, this is going to really help my cramps. And then later I was like, Oh, I guess I technically did yoga today. But it like, did it just had none of that narrative of like, I have to do it. It was so intrinsic of like, this will help me feel better. And so this is like movement for, for, you know, like feeling good and nothing else about it. So I feel like that wasn't the most um, coherent explanation of that, but it represented a little milestone to me that this was something that I did without feeling like a have to, without feeling like, and in the past, like 10 minutes would have felt like it didn't count, right? It would have felt like that was still a yes. fail. And so for it to be like 10 minutes of stretching and have that actually be meaningful felt like a really cool thing.
1: That's yoga on your own terms, isn't it? That's exactly, mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. That is, I think, a wonderful train happy moment. I have to say, like a really great... Um, yeah really great representation of what it means to truly be in control of what you're doing but not controlling what you're doing if that makes sense
0: right yes totally like I I had no agenda around it it was just like oh wow being in child's pose will feel good (laughs) and it did so yeah so Virginia where can everyone find you find
1: your work read your articles um read your book and I believe you're you've announced a second book as well so tell us more about it
0: Okay. So my first book is called The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. Um, it's available wherever you get books. Although I think UK listeners, it takes a while to get to it you. It takes a while. <laughs> it does take a while, but it is, <laughs> it is possible to get it. Yes. Um, my new book that I'm working on that will not be out for probably about two years is called Fat Kid Phobia, What the War on Childhood Obesity Gets Wrong and How Parents Can Raise Healthy Kids at Every Size. Um, so that will be out in a while because I'm just starting it. But i um, if you want to kind of follow along for updates, the best way is either Instagram, which is at V underscore SoulSmith, um, or go to my website, virginiasoulsmith.com and subscribe to my newsletter, which comes out every two weeks. And again, I answer parent questions in there. I give updates on the reporting process, all that kind of stuff. So that is in any new articles I have coming out. I write a monthly column for the New York Times about this stuff. So there's always like something new coming out. Um, yeah, those are the places.
1: Amazing. I will link you as well in, in the show notes and people can find you there. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat. And when the second book is out, I would love to chat about it again. And yes, please. I think that'd be so exciting. So um,
0: good luck with writing. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This has been a total blast.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: And that is it for this
1: week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast, Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening as it really, really helps to support and boost the Train Happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the Train Happy Trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too, and it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening, and I will speak to you soon.